Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Dave Emanuel. I only sorta saw vaginas. I was 13, I had Showtime and Cinemax, but grooming habits were different back then, and I only saw hair and mystery. <laughs> that and more, but first I just want to say, holy shit, we have so much going on at Patreon right now. Last week we put up a compilation of anecdotes by you guys. This week we're putting up a fabulous story by Melanie Maris, and pretty soon we're going to feature an interview with Amy Salloway, one of everyone's favorite risk storytellers and story studio teachers. And if we get to $10,000 per month, you know, once we cross that threshold, I promise I'm going to do a down-tempo, like, lounge jazz version of the Stamps.com theme for everyone. So if you're on Patreon, up your donation. And if you're not, get over there and donate. I have to give big thanks to these four people. We always give a shout out to people giving $25 per month or more. And this week, I have to thank Drew Register, Marion Irby, Wendy Coslow, and Amanda Helberg. Thank you guys so much. It is really helping to keep Brisk running in a very, very serious way. So all of that is at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash risk. Or if you want to make a one-time donation, go to paypal.me slash risk show. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Ricardo Grilly behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Throne. Three stories from ridiculous to intriguing to shocking situations people didn't see coming. I've been having a better week. I got some exercise in, which definitely makes me feel better. I've been reading a beautiful, really, truly beautiful book called Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and Its Urgent Lessons for Our Own by Eddie Glaudy Jr. Started text banking to get out the vote, which is really fun. And we had a terrific Risk live stream this past weekend. There's going to be another one on September 26th at 10 p.m. Eastern. You can always get tickets at risk-show.com tour. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story from one of you, a Risk listener, sent a story in, a little radio anecdote. His name is Joseph Van Dorn. But before that, we're going to hear a story that was recorded at one of our live streams. This was incredibly memorable, just quite recently, actually. This is Dave Emanuel at a Risk live stream just a few weeks back. Dave Emanuel with a story we call Ham It Up. Hey, everybody. Well, let's start this off. You know, I don't know what it's like for other people with obsessive compulsive disorder. I know that they wash their hands and many, many times they can't step on cracks or they have rules in their head that help them manage anxiety. But I don't know if they experienced OCD the way I did and where I especially did as a child. I heard the voice of God telling me what to do. It would come from the heavens. It would come from inside my head. And it would say, for every step you take up the stairs, every two of those, take one down. Every time, even in school, even when kids are laughing at you. It would say, David, when you turn the channel on your TV, we didn't have remote controls, you have to be in the air. Meaning I had to leap in the air every time I turned the channel. If I touched the ground, I had to make sure that knob was not moving. And there were huge, huge consequences. The voice would tell me, your parents will get sick. Somebody you love will die. It'll be your fault. And this was the 80s. The Cold War was going on. The consequences for my failure were big. So we survived the Cold War. Thank you. That was me. That was me following every step I was told to keep us safe. But there was one time, one time the voice in my head, the voice of God asked for too much. I was 13 years old. I was walking home from school and the voice said, stop masturbating. Oh no. (laughs) I heard it and I said, I'm not. Not out loud, I could talk to the God in my head. And it said, ever. Ever. 13 years old. (laughs) Masturbating was what I did. It was my skill set, my wheelhouse. It was what I knew. And now I had to walk home and never do it again. Don't forget about the Cold War. There were consequences to my misdeeds. And my OCD was a son of a bitch. 
So now, ordinarily, I can make it from my middle school to home without even thinking about whacking one out, without even worrying about it. But not when the voice just told me I could never masturbate again. Never. So I saw penises and I saw vaginas everywhere I looked. Telephone poles, trees. Now, to be honest, I only sort of saw vaginas. I was 13. It was the 80s. I had Showtime and Cinemax, but grooming habits were different back then. And I only saw hair and mystery. I only saw blurry possibilities of what I might be looking at. So, nevertheless, those bushes and the trees walking by for me were doing a number on my 13-year-old psyche. They were in my head. I can only say thank God we had no hipsters back then, because if one of those finely groomed mustaches and beards combinations came out, I would have popped on the spot. I never would have made it. But, guys, I made it. I made it all the way home, all the way through the night, through the hardest Friday, the hardest Friday night of my life. Hands up here the whole time. Sleeping with my hands up, not thinking about anything but what could go wrong. I was doing it. The next day I woke up and I said, I can do this for my sake, for my parents' sake, for the sake of all of us. I'm done with that stuff. I'm not doing it again. But my mom, for Sunday dinner the next day, she brought home a spiral ham. She brought home a spiral ham, goddammit. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have ever seen a spiral ham, but when you open that thing up out of the foil, we're talking about pink folds of flesh parting over a delicious and moist center. And those hands, that inner part of the hand, just kind of folds in and disappears into someplace mysterious that I'd never even seen on Cinemax in Showtime. I had never seen a vagina, but I knew what was going on with that spiral ham. And it was in the fridge, and later on everybody was asleep. And by midnight, that spiral ham and I were making love in the soft light of the refrigerator. That first slap of cold meat was kind of an awakening, but soon it was warm and it was juicy, and my God, it was the best minute, minute five of my life. Oh, my God. I risked everything that night. All of you. I put all of your lives right there in jeopardy with that refrigerator and that ham. And I was done. I took that ham and I folded it back into the foil. And I put it back into the fridge exactly where it was, where oh, no one would know a thing. And I went back to my sleep, and I lay down in my room, and for a while everything felt okay. But I'll tell you something about kids with anxiety and OCD. It's not just the anxiety. We can also imagine anything, anything going wrong. And I imagined Sunday dinner the next night. I imagine my parents and me sitting down at the table with that ham. Now my dad, he was a fierce eater. He ate like he was going to war and I could just see him with pig fat glistening off his cheeks and my mom stabbing a piece of meat with that fork and holding it up to me and saying, David, you have to try this. It's the juiciest, saltiest thing I've ever had in my mouth. And me running away saying, don't you think I know that mom? God damn it, I love that ham. 
So I woke up in my bed knowing I couldn't do that. I got up, I went to the refrigerator and I pulled out that ham and I threw that ham away. And by throw it away, I mean I put it in my underwear drawer with my other prize positions. There was still a couple of good nights left in that piece of meat. And I cannot tell you what we ate for Sunday dinner. I cannot remember. Maybe we ordered pizza. Because that meat, that meat was mine. <laughs> and here's a key piece. When I was standing there and I was looking at that ham, the voice came back. The voice of God. And it said, no masturbating. And I said, no masturbating. Fine. Except with ham. That's the first time in my life I ever talked back to the voice in my head. Since then, I've had therapy. I've had medications. I got stuff under control. But the first time, the first time I stood up to my OCD, I owe that all to a ham and the, the needs of a 13-year-old boy. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. David Manuel, everyone. college days, I used to like to work on my essays at the small coffee shop from across the campus. So it was a Sunday afternoon and I was typing away on my laptop and I'm getting a little tired so I look away from my screen for a little bit and I immediately lock eyes with this guy sitting across the cafe. He has very big shoulders, a tight white shirt, and short black hair. And it's one of those long, awkward stares where you accidentally look into each other's eyes and you just can't break away. And also I noticed that he's looking kind of intensely at me and the intensity kind of like hypnotizes me for a moment. But anyway, we break our stare and I go back to work on my essay. So some time goes by and I look up again and I notice that he had left. But then I look and see in the corner of my eye that he'd actually changed from that spot to the table right next to me. I find this to be a little strange, but you know, people shift in cafes all the time, so I don't think too much of it. So a little bit more time goes on, and I actually really need to pee. So I have to make a decision, you know, I, I don't want to lose my spot, but I also don't want someone to steal my laptop. So I decided to take a little risk and just rush into the bathroom quickly and come out and it should be all right. So 
I go into the bathroom, I unzip, and I start to use the urinal. And then I notice in the corner of my eye that that guy had followed me into the bathroom and that he was approaching me uh, very quickly. And he got pretty close to me, uncomfortably close. Um, I'm not sure what he was able to see, but my dick was definitely out. And he said, are you gay? And I kind of froze in that moment because I've never been asked any question while at a urinal before. And I've definitely never been asked something this heavy before. And the fact that I was, you know, peeing my dick fully out, I was very vulnerable in this moment. So I was kind of unsure of how to respond, but I was able to compose myself enough to say, oh no, sorry, um, I'm straight. And he said, oh, you're very handsome. I'm not sure if he was looking at my face or something else at that time, but I just say, oh, um, thank you, um, you too. So anyway, I wash my hands and we actually walk out together. And then we have a pretty nice conversation. You know, he tells me that he's from Japan and he's out here studying for his engineering degree. And I tell him a little bit more about myself. I eventually go back to work on my essay. We chat here and there. And then eventually his tutor comes and they start working on an assignment together. And it's getting a little bit late, so I take that as my cue to go. Now, as I think back on this event, I can't help but wonder, why did he choose the bathroom to ask me out? And I kind of realized that he was maybe looking for something more exciting that day than just, you know, a quick conversation. I also realized that I accidentally stepped into a gay space that day. When I stared at him, I had somehow told him through my eyes that I was looking for male companionship, even though I wasn't, right? And I'm also a little bit flattered, you know, out of all the guys in the coffee shop, he chose me to engage, right? Which is pretty cool. Now, we lost touch, but wherever he is, I hope that he's having more success in men's bathrooms. This is Risk. This is Linda Ronstadt behind me now. And we just heard from Joseph Van Dorn, a Risk listener who sent in that little anecdote there. And you can too. Listen, if you go to the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group, you will find a post there where I talk about how you can send us an anecdote of your own. Or you can just email me at kevin at risk-show.com and I can answer any questions and give you a little, you know, support as to how to go about it. 
The anecdotes are always, you know, focusing in on one or two little incidents and, you know, last under four minutes. And we're especially looking for scary stories right now for our Halloween episode. So scary stories of any length, actually. If you have a scary story, reach out. And before Joseph Van Dorn, we heard a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr, a very hammy presentation there. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our final storyteller in this week's episode really knocked me out. I was so bowled over by this story that Ashton Cynthia Clark shared on actually the same live stream, the same night that Dave Emanuel shared his story that we heard earlier. That was quite a show, (laughs) I'll tell you that. Now, this is Ashton's second time doing Risk. She was so lovely the first time she did the show out in Los Angeles. But I'm so thrilled she came back. You can find her on YouTube. Just look up on YouTube, Ashton Cynthia Clark. And here she is now with a story we call Zoom Bombed. Now... This was the early 1960s in a very integrated elementary school in a very integrated New York City neighborhood. An eight-year-old Negro girl holds her braids back so she can more easily drink from the water fountain in the hallway. Two of her classmates approach and they wait their turn at the fountain. One girl, who is white, says real loudly while pointing at the girl at the fountain, isn't she so black? Not getting an immediate response, she stares down at her friend, who is also Negro, but a lighter skin color than the girl at the fountain. 
After a minute, the Negro fan chimes in. <laughs> yes! She's so black! And the friends laugh and sing song. So black! So black! So black! Until the first girl leaves. Expressionless and saying nothing. That evening, the mother of the taunted girl makes a telephone call. And my mother answers the phone. This was an event that my mother often shared with close family. And Myra's mother actually called my house. <laughs> of course, Cynthia promised she had done no such thing. And why would she call another girl black? Cynthia's black herself. <laughs> Mommy punctuated her story with a Jamaican slang. But I had lied to Mommy. I did it. I did call Myra black. But after all, she was black. So what if her hair hung longer and straighter than mine? I'd heard grown-ups talk about this brown paper bag test, and even though my skin wasn't lighter than a paper bag, I wasn't as dark as Myra. We weren't the same. And besides, I was with my best friend. I had to agree with her. <sighs> Didn't I know who I was? What was wrong with me? Didn't I know what I was? Well, by the time I got to seventh grade, just four years later, I was not a Negro anymore. I was black. We all were. Whether dark brown or high yellow or with one white parent, we were all called black. My first year in college, I visited Myra at her parents' new home. And by then, I was sporting this bouncy afro. I was living in the black house on campus in a pretty much mostly white school. And I was protesting a college performance of Showboat for its cultural racism. I hadn't seen Myra for like eight years, and she didn't bring up the water fountain incident, and I certainly didn't either. I mean, I figured my evolution into blackness made up for my disgusting behavior way back then. And thankfully, Myra's mother wasn't there to see the guilt lurking behind my aviator glasses. Now, a whole lot of years have passed since then, but it's still hard for me to even understand, much less explain, the stages I went through as a black person in America. There weren't any black Barbies when I was playing with dolls. My earliest neighborhood was equal parts black, white, and Puerto Rican. <laughs> Lieutenant Uhuru was probably the first positive black female I saw on television. And she did her job with style. I mean, in that little mini skirt with her thick thighs and forget about multicultural. She worked in a multi-planetoid environment. Watching her was probably how my old world view started to be shaped. I mean, don't get it twisted, though. It's not like I was never touched by racism. I remember the time I was walking by the beach with my mother right here in Southern California. And these white boys, and, and they were young kids, they were boys, zoomed by on their bicycles and yelled the N-word at us. Mm. And then, vacationing in Hawaii, somebody hurled the N-word at me while I was driving in my Jeep. But I just saw those as isolated incidents. I didn't let them change who I thought I was. After all, 
I divorced a black husband than that I divorced a white husband. So I was equal opportunity. And even my storytelling, I discovered storytelling just a couple of years before. And, you know, oh my, since the pandemic, I really miss going out to different venues to share truths about my life and the lessons that I've learned. But nine out of 10 times, those lessons had nothing to do with race. I mean, I never considered that as the hugest part of my life. So for my first online show back in May, I planned this humorous, lighthearted tale that anybody could relate to. Now, you know how Zoom works, right? Well, even if you didn't before, you're on it now. And, you know, you can often see everyone's little face or name in the gallery view, which is a grid. And then there's chat blocks. You've seen that where you can type in something to encourage the performers. Um, sometimes the chat is disabled, though, for security reasons. Now, for a performer, these Zoom shows can get pretty intense in their own way, different from being live on stage. On stage, you're set back from the audience. But I mean, here, when my face is close up on screen, every pore is visible. And if the wig ain't straight or the lace front is ragged, the audience sees everything. Now, for this show back in May, my assigned slot was 5 o'clock, and I had invited friends and family to come and tune in then. But I decided to jump on when the show started at noon. It was going to be a 24-hour marathon, just to check on my host and support whoever else was on there. Anyway, there are about 10 of us comedians, storytellers, no real audience as of yet. But since I was there, my host talked me into telling this impromptu story a little later just to help things get started. So we'd been on for maybe 15 minutes when the chat box popped up on the screen with the typewritten words, Ashton Cynthia Clark is a nigger bitch. Did anybody else see? For one crazy second, I thought, is this somebody I know making some sort of insane prank? I mean, I wasn't even talking then, just hanging out off stage, my little face visible up in the corner of the gallery. And then again, Ashton Cynthia Clark is a This was no joke. We were being Zoom bombed. And then, over and over and over, it scrolled and scrolled, repeating and repeating. It felt like a hundred times. It was as if this crazy racist had a dedicated key on their laptop or whatever, and all they had to do was lean on it. And this was less than two weeks after the video of Ahmaud Arbery's murder emerged online. And just like the rest of the nation, I was already raw and reeling from that. Who would do this to me? My mind was like flip-flopping along with my stomach. This person called me by name. I mean, I knew that my name was visible on the Zoom screen, but it was like they targeted me. Was this somebody from real life who really meant this for me? Someone who hated me? There's a fuzzy image in the bottom of the gallery. Was that him? I was terrified. Turn off 
the chat! One of the other storytellers yelled. The host was paralyzed. Turn off the chat! Finally, our host found the right controls and cut off access to the chat box, and the perp left the Zoom. My host fell over himself apologizing. But do you still want to do your story? I'm traumatized and devastated, but I could do my story. <laughs> I said it like it was a joke. But I couldn't let anybody know that internally I was cut up and bleeding. I did my story like a real professional, and I even hung out for a few minutes afterwards. Then I logged off, crawled into bed, and dragged the covers over my head. But at five o'clock, I was online again, telling my originally planned story to the delight of my friends and family who had tuned in from New York. For the next few days, I was in terror and in shock. I couldn't bring myself to tell anybody except my therapist about this Zoom bombing. Would this crazy racist go after me next on social media for everybody to see? And then just a week later, George Floyd was killed. Another crime against my people, my black people. By then, I was beyond sensitive. It was like my skin was flipped inside out on my body. Because of that Zoom attack, I think I felt an immediacy and a really gut-twisting intimacy about Floyd's killing that I might not have felt otherwise. I was hair trigger, and I didn't want to hear nothing from nobody about nothing. But slowly over the next few months, I revealed the incident to a few friends. And my takeaway, because you know there's always a takeaway at the story. Well, this is what I told people. That as a black artist, part of my responsibility is to reflect the times in which I'm living. And from now on, my work was going to reflect those times. But, you know, wearing an Afro back in college or writing woke stories now won't make up for the sadness that I caused an eight-year-old girl named Myra. I mean, my brain understood how horribly I had wronged her. My mind understood, but until that Zoom bomb hit me, I had never felt the pain of such a personal frontal attack. And it's taken me until today to acknowledge that. So I want to say to Myra and to Myra's mother and to my mommy, please forgive me. I'm so, so sorry. Thank you. Must come spring.
is all for this week's episode folks this is ash or no this is this is lauren hill behind me now and we just heard from ashton cynthia clark you can look ashton up on youtube just look up ashton cynthia clark there now if you've never visited us at risk-show.com there's so much to find on our website, you have the tables of contents of all the episodes there with the links to where you can find the bands, the music you hear, the storytellers themselves, the tour dates that you can buy tickets for, our merchandise in our shop, including the Risk book, the submissions page, which has all sorts of wonderful tips on how to pitch us your stories. Also, if you just look at this episode in your podcast app, whatever app you're using, you will see a big list of links for how to reach us, how you can support Risk on Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. And remember, once we get up to $10,000 per month, I'm going to make a jazz version of the stamps.com song. So <laughs> start getting over there to Patreon and sending us more money. You can also make a one-time donation to Risk at paypal.me slash risk show. The tickets, like I said before, for the live stream. The next live stream is September 26 at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 7 p.m. Pacific. The holidays are coming up soon, soon enough. So the Risk Book makes a really, really great gift. You can find it at theriskbook.com. You can take so many different kinds of storytelling classes at thestorystudio.org. We have free little seminars. We have two-day workshops that you can take in person with a bunch of other people. We have lengthier workshops. We have videos that you can download and you know watch and do a workshop on your own in your own time. We also do corporate workshops. We've worked with clients like Google and Pfizer and Citibank and American Express. So many great workshops we've done for corporations over the years, and we do them virtually now too. So that's all at thestorystudio.org. Now you can hire me to make a personalized video for you at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. You can hire me as your coach for storytelling training, consultation, that's at kevinallison.com. And you can text with me through joinsubtext.com slash risk show. Also, be sure to check us out on Facebook at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group. So many great discussions going on there. Also, our subreddit is Risk Podcast. So there's a lot of ways to get involved and reach out to us. You can always reach out to me and ask me anything directly at kevin at risk-show.com. 
Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Everything is everything. Everything is everything. Everything is everything. Everything is everything. After winter, after must come spring. Must come spring. Everything is everything. Everything is everything. Everything.